wisdom withholds. And what I meant by that, and what I still mean by it, is that wisdom withholds for the right place, person, and time. Vulnerability is not saying everything to everyone. And anyone who tries to tell you that you're inauthentic if you're not super transparent, that's just like a really terrible definition of authenticity because it doesn't require to be transparent with everyone. That's actually really not smart at all. It's dangerous. It's destructive. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey friends, this week, Lindsay and I are diving into the deep end with writer, speaker, and advocate, Manda Carpenter. Together, we chat about the ways that Manda has chosen to live her life with radical honesty, intentionally pursue a life defined by a longer table living, and how her choice to be vulnerable in her new book, Soul Care to Save Your Life, is inviting others into real healing. This conversation was a breath of fresh air, and I love all the simple, practical ways that Manda shared how we can extend our circles and invest more intentionally in the people around us. I can't wait for you to meet our friend, Manda Carpenter. So excited to be here today with Manda Carpenter. Manda is somewhat of a new friend that we have tons of mutual friends, but got to know her uh, earlier this year when I was on her podcast, actually, and immediately came back to McKenzie and said, we've got to have her on the Living Center podcast. I just love, Manda, that your podcast is really focused around like bringing in unique voices and people with experience that might be different than your own and trying to sort of widen our humanity and our empathy. And those are things that we're so passionate about it on site. We think like it's part of the power of the group work, which we do in all of our workshops is just seeing people sitting across from them, hearing their stories and realizing that we're not as different as we think we are and that we're not or we don't have to be defined by these things and these labels that we are choosing to wear a lot and especially in the world that's so divisive. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about sort of the catalyst for that as a thing of sort of a a longer table of like gathering different voices and where that sort of passion came from in you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be a guest. And, you know, I feel like for me, it stems from, I think growing up, I sometimes felt like if people would get to know someone's story, maybe it was my own parent or a friend of mine or or my own, that if only they knew my story, they would have compassion or they may, they would see things differently. And so over the years, I sort of came to this belief that there isn't a single person we wouldn't love if we knew their story. But so often we don't get to know people's stories or take the time to know their stories. And so 
that's to me unfortunate. And the older I got, the more I think I became passionate about it. I wanted to put this theory, if you want to call it that, to the test. And so I tried to live a life that built a longer table. And what that looked Mm -hmm. like was seeking out, not just like, because it's not going to happen by chance. You're going to naturally almost always be surrounded by people who think like you, believe like you. You you have to really go out of your way and be intentional if you want to build a longer table. And so- This podcast that I started, that's kind of where that stems from. But really, it's just like an extension of my life and something that I'm really passionate about. And it's it's changed me. Like, yeah. I think getting to know people and hearing their stories has been so much more effective at challenging and sometimes even changing beliefs that I mm. hold than anything else. Like, I I don't know the last time someone got in a Facebook war with me and that actually left me going, hmm, maybe they're right, right? That's never been an effective tool for for change or advocacy or whatever the case is. But man, relationships and story and curiosity, that's changed everything. Mm. Yeah. And so I love that you've kind of like built this life around that and you say like there's intentionality around that practically, because we are, we do live in like homogenous neighborhoods. And so many of us like worship with people who look like us and do life with people who look like us. How do we intentionally do that? Like how, what are some of the practices that have marked your life that have helped you do that? Yeah. I I know this, that sounds like a really big step, so it won't be for everybody, but for my husband and I, it was choosing to move to a diverse neighborhood, to a diverse Mm -hmm. city and um, really looking for a neighborhood where maybe uh, as a white couple, like we weren't the majority. And same thing with where we send kids to school, where we Mm. go to church, where we looking for on that, on that front. It's not that we don't want to befriend people who do look like us or think like us or believe like us. Again, that will naturally happen though. We don't have to go out of our way to like make that happen. So in every area, how can I go out of my way to seek out a differing viewpoint and perspective. And so that even starts on a small scale. It's like social media. What voices do you follow? Or what books are you picking out? What are the, you know, are all of the books you read other white women who are you know, evangelical, for example? Or yeah. are you picking up books by authors of color or people who, yeah, have a different uh, socioeconomic background or whatever the case is? And I think we overcomplicate longer table living. I think we think it's this really complicated thing, but I'm here to say it's not complicated. It's just intentional. Yeah. It's it's a t- it's tiny little shifts. Um, and I think once you start doing it, you start to realize like it's everywhere. For my husband and I, it's now, again, I have nothing against Starbucks, but this is like a, another small shift. As often as I can, going to local coffee shops that are owned by Black people or Asian people, or like specifically I have two that I go to often, and how can I not only support other, whatever other yeah. means or looks like, but then also building relationships. So the one coffee shop I went to it this morning, they know my name. They've gotten to know me a little bit. I'm starting to get to know them. And they're probably people, the owners and the employees there. I don't know if I would have ever had a relationship otherwise, Yeah, but just by making, yeah, our paths may have never crossed, but just by making an intentional effort to uh, be in a space that I'm not always the majority or it's not as convenient, but just that small effort makes a huge difference. There's so much, but I think that's that's like yeah. a scratch the surface answer. I love it. I feel like for a lot of us, like our world got smaller during the pandemic and yeah. in my own life, what 
sort of naturally got lobbed off was sort of the richness and the diversity of a lot of my relationships, you know, in that shrinking. And um, I last night I went to a memorial service for an old friend that had passed away. He was in his 80s. And uh, like 10 years ago, we used to have this rhythm of there was a group of us that would get together every Tuesday night and do dinner, but it was like really multi-generational. And a friend and I that were driving down to the service were just laughing about like, it was such a fun and rich season to like hear stories of them and their childhood and just bridge some of those gaps. And yeah, it just was, it was such a gift. And I'd almost like forgotten about sort of the gift of that season and the gift of those relationships until I like could kind of widen my lens and be like, oh yeah, this is all here still. You know, I just need to be more, I need to like flex that muscle again of like getting outside of what is nearby and easy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I do think it's like having the intention and also be, be willing to sacrifice a bit because it's worth it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that you're naming that too, because I think one of the biggest fears that keeps people from a longer table lifestyle or having a longer table of voices, you know, obviously that's a metaphor. It doesn't actually have to be at your kitchen table. We have like a (laughs) tiny little round table because we live in a tiny apartment in, in LA here. But, but just think of that as a metaphor. I think one of the things that keeps people from it is the fear of messing up, especially, I mean, we all know like around the same time as the pandemic, I think it made people scared that Mm. instead of pursuing friendship with the other, whatever the other is, they would rather not look dumb or face conflict or they're, they're terrified of messing up. So then they actually just like shrank back and like stayed in their safe bubble. And what I have found in my encouragement to kind of go against that fear is two things. Number one, people are so much more gracious than we give them credit for. And I think if your only view of quote unquote, the other, whatever that is, is through the lens of social media, no wonder you're terrified because social media (laughs) is brutal. But never once have I had an encounter, even some of the most clunky, wonky encounters with someone where they haven't been gracious. Like as embarrassing as it is, I remember the first night that my husband and I were hanging out with a Muslim couple that we became good friends with. And I didn't know they didn't eat meat. And here I brought over meat lovers pizza. Like that's wonky. (laughs) That's clunky. Cause not, I, and then I, to make it even worse, I was like, can we just pick off the meat? And it's like, no, that doesn't work. But you know what? They still hang out with us to this day. They didn't let that yeah. one interaction ruin the relationship. And so I think we're just afraid of looking stupid or feeling dumb or having conflict. And I think it's much more of an irrational fear that we make really big in our minds than it is actually uh, a reality. So, Mm. and on the flip side, let me just say this too, the gift of living, like, I guess the answer to why is this something I'm passionate about and why do I care and why would I encourage people to pursue a longer table lifestyle? The best way I can put it is number one, I want you to experience it for yourself because then you'll know. I don't even have all the words to accurately express how rich it makes my life. But what I will say is, you find that you have much more in common with people than you are different. And you learn so much. There is so much that I thought I 
knew or I was raised to believe and think a certain way. And until something comes along and really like challenges that, yeah, sometimes it causes your whole world to feel a little disoriented and you're like, what is happening? But most of the time, it's actually just this really cool moment where you're like, oh, oh, it's bigger than what I thought or, oh, it's, it's, it can mean that too. And I think it's just been, it's just been a real gift. I know that sounds kind of fluffy, but that's the best way to explain it. I love it. I also love your use of the word wonky. <laughs> I, <laughs> I uh, say we all have lot. young kids, and I like. I think that our go-to book right now is the Wonky Donkey. Do y'all have uh, that one? Yes. We have yes. the Wonky Donkey, and we have the Something Granny Donkey too. Oh, <laughs> I don't have that one yet. So every time I hear the word wonky, I think a wonky donkey. Hee-haw. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's just uh, the best word to explain. Like you know, when you walk away from yo, those interactions, yeah. they're just yeah. so clunky. They're so wonky, and you're like, oh, like you just want to like shrink down in your seat. But I believe that so much of our life is an experiment. We just need to like take the pressure off of being perfect or being perceived oh, yeah. as perfect and having it all figured out, and and just like figure it out as we go. Like mm-hmm. I don't know, it's so much more freeing. Yes, yeah, I was about to say some way. of the most freeing um, and best experiences I've had with people is either one, like myself leading out and saying, hey, I feel really awkward in this moment, or yes. I'm going to be clunky, or I might not be able to do this perfectly, and just calling it out on the front end, or when someone does that and also gives me the permission to then show up as my whole self. So I don't have to yes. show up as like my perfectly poised like thing I want. Like it, It's so permission giving Yes, when someone's willing to risk messing it up. Yes. But it's scary and vulnerable. And I love that practical piece of advice. I've done the same thing just on the front end, giving the disclaimer, like, Hey, I have no idea if I'm doing this right. I'm really trying here. And, and again, I've never been met with like hate or like someone like cussing me out. Like it's always met with grace. So I think Again, if we live in the world of just social media where our lens of doing relationship with people who are so different from us or who we think are so different from us mm-hmm. is just in that space, of course we're going to be terrified. But take that into your real life in any way that you can. And it's it's a gift that you just have to experience for yourself. I think it's like offering authenticity to the world. Um, yes. And as you were saying that, it was making me think you've kind of been in a season where you have been offering a lot of authenticity to the world and to yourself putting a book out into the world where you were pretty uh, vulnerable and sharing some radical honesty. And so I'd love to hear about kind of a snapshot of what this season has been like for you. And are you learning things around this topic of how do I be authentic and true to myself and radically honest while also being protective and smart? And yeah, what does that look like? Yeah, I love that you're bringing this up. So yeah, my new book, Soul Care to Save Your Life, is extremely vulnerable. And I feel like every author says that because to each author, person writing their own stories. I'm sure it feels that way. What I will say is I, I really bear my soul. I tell you the things I don't want you to know about me, like right, right from the get go. Like I even had a friend who is a pastor who read it and his endorsement was basically, well, Amanda did not follow the Christian book formula of how to do this. Um, because chapter two, I'm coming at you. Chapter two, you, you get it all. You find out the very kind of lowest, darkest moments in my life that were, and and to kind of, yeah, like go all the way there. Like the things that I did that caused havoc on my own life. So I had to, it's not only like, oh, this is embarrassing for me to share, but then it's like another layer of, I I did this, it's on me. Um, there's no one else to blame. So that's like a whole other layer of vulnerability, I feel like that came with it. But 
I what I feel like I've learned in this season is true in a um, a latter chapter in the book. And I said that wisdom withholds. And what I meant by that, mm. and what I still mean by it, is that wisdom withholds for the right place, person, and time. Mm, and so good. it would not have been wise of me. So we're just going to like, spoiler alert, if you like reading books, you're going to know something in my book here. It would not have been wise of me six years ago in the moment to go on the internet or to write and publish a book saying I had an affair on my husband. That would not have been wise. It also wouldn't have been wise of me to say to my in-laws, hey, we're having marriage struggles and this is what we just were going through in that moment. I think that actually one of the things that spared our marriage and both of us a lot of heartache in the aftermath of my infidelity was that we withheld, again, different from secrecy, because it was not a secret anymore. There was plenty of people who knew, but they were the right people at the right place in the right time, starting with a Mm. therapist in her office, right? And so I think that we live in a time where people think you need to tell everything on the internet. And I've even had people who assume that I do just because I do share so much. But what none of us knows is uh, what people are withholding um, at all times. And For me as a writer, I think what I feel very affirmed in and sure of and confident and I'm so gracious to God that like there was honestly like wisdom from people that I honestly think God like gave to them to give to me leading up to all of this was that we didn't come out with that part of our story sooner than we did. I was able to write about it from a place of healing and we are able as a couple to despite what anyone thinks when they read it or opinions they have, it doesn't impact our emotional well-being or the state of our relationship or my mental health. And so, yeah, I, I think that vulnerability is not saying everything to everyone. And anyone who tries to tell you that you're inauthentic if you're not, you know, super transparent, that's just like a really um, terrible definition of authenticity, because yeah. it doesn't require to be transparent with everyone. That's actually really not dangerous. smart at all. It's dangerous. It's destructive. So I think that's what I'm walking away with is just like, yes, wisdom withholds for the right place, the right person, the right time. And anyone who's upset that they weren't the right person or it wasn't the right time, that's on them. That's not on you. Don't yeah. let anyone fool you into thinking like you were inauthentic because you weren't transparent with them at a certain point in your, in your journey. There's so much goodness there. One of my like questions is how did you or how can people discern who the right people, the right time and the right place are? Yeah. Yeah. And and we could be talking about a multitude of things here. So the severity obviously determines some factors, but we talk a lot about this, like also in the context of people like sharing what they learned in their on-site experience or whatever. And it's like, you don't have to go home and tell everybody. Some of it's sacred, you know? Some of it you can keep for, for yourself. Sure. So for I sure. agree. It is like such good knowledge to hold on for all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if it's, if you can't tell someone without their reaction impacting your decision or your well-being, your mental health, your spirit, whatever it is about it, then that's an indication they're probably not the right person to tell. Yeah, I think it almost always starts with like, look for the healthy person who 
isn't going to share necessarily their opinion, but they're just going to be a good like space holder for you, like someone who's going to hold space for you. Sometimes that's found in a therapist. Sometimes that's found in a mentor. It's found in really good friends. But I think the key word there is health. If someone's not healthy, you know, that's when projecting starts. That's when unwelcome, unsolicited advice comes in. And so there's that. The right place in the right time. For me, for example, I was drinking wine with some friends and I had someone pressing me to share more than I was ready to share. And I could just sense like some manipulation and some pressure. And I knew for me, even if I had been on a journey where I was going to continue and share more in that moment, my guard went up, which I think is your body won't lie to you, right? Your body's going to tell you. And I was like, Ooh, even though I was about to share something, I'm starting to feel some pressure. And that right there is a sign. It's probably not the right time. So I'm just going to sit tight because listen, if it is the right person, the right place in the right time, especially if it's the right person, they're not going anywhere. So if you're not sure, listen to that still small voice inside you. I don't think that's going to lead you astray. If something's telling you at all, like don't share, then, then I would listen to that. I would pay attention. You can't take back what you've said, but you can always reach back out in the future to say, Hey, I want to, I want to sit down and fill you in on something that happened five years ago or last week or whatever it is. Right. And I just, I think I've learned a lot too about the difference between reactivity and responsiveness. That's just been like a whole journey. I think of maturing that call it emotional intelligence, call it spiritual growth, whatever you want to call it. I think I've learned so much about the difference between reacting and responding. And even that like has a place in this conversation, you know? Yeah. It's so great. Hey friends, I hope that you're enjoying this interview as much as I did. Throughout our entire conversation with Manda, the topic of shame just kept coming up for me. I kept thinking about how shame lurks below our vulnerability. It lurks below our intention to reach out and expand our circles. And frankly, it just lurks below so much of our lives. Shame is universal to the human condition. It's something we all experience. And I know for me, it's something that I try to hide, minimize, or ignore. But the truth is, when I ignore it, its power only grows. What I'm learning is that like every other emotion, when I can learn to acknowledge what shame is teaching me, I can thoughtfully manage its impact and move forward with peace and understanding instead of getting trapped in all too familiar shame spirals. That's why I'm so excited about our newest emotional health masterclass, The Shame Reframe. It equips you to explore the different aspects of shame, understand where it's coming from, identify how it's affecting your life, and invites you to form a new, different kind of relationship with shame. So if you use the code PODCAST at the checkout, you'll get 15% off your purchase. Head to onsiteworkshops.com slash shame now to check it out. Now, back to the interview. I loved even the wisdom you shared about, like, doing it from a place of healing and how you were able to tell the story, like having done your work and been in that space. I think some of the best advice I've ever been given when it comes to what I'm sharing, how I'm sharing, who I'm sharing with is to share from my scars and not my wounds. And I think my therapist was like, hey, if you touch it, does it hurt? It's not healed yet. Let's continue to work on this before we let the whole world in. Yes. Um, and I just, yeah. I really love that, that yeah. wisdom that you shared with us. Lindsay, I interrupted you. No, I I don't even know that I had a fully formed question at the time. And it's still kind of coming together. But I do think sort of, you know, like 
There is something weird in society about, um, we see it with celebrities a lot and all the news articles around affairs, you know, yeah. and like our fascination with like other people's, how their relationships are. And especially if there's like something scandalous, scandalous yeah. in it, you know, it's just interesting how that is so provocative. And, you know, I would say in my own experience, walking alongside a lot of coupled friends that have walked through, you know, infidelity, it, it feels really normal <laughs> that it, it, it's interesting that it's still such a provocative kind of topic. I mean, yeah, I, I don't even know how, how, but we have had, you know, a couple of therapists on the podcast that kind of specialize in helping couples after the term they use for it is betrayal trauma. Yeah. Which will be great resources. And so just want to say, if it's something that you as a listener are walking through, that those are great. Uh, it's the conversation with Debbie Reed and then one with um, Dr. Skinner, Kevin Skinner, would both be great resources because if you're walking through it, of course, it's this huge thing. But it, it is interesting how it affects so many people outside of the relationship. I don't know. Any thoughts or comments on that? Yeah. Well, one of the things I just want to say is I appreciate what you just shared because it normalizes it. And I don't mean it, it excuses it, justifies it, or makes it okay. But I do think it's important that we normalize these things because I know in my book, I tell, I for a while kept it a hidden secret because I was so ashamed because I thought I was the only one. And I thought I had committed this unforgivable sin. Like it was like the worst sin of all sin. And I wasn't even worthy of like not only being married, but like living anymore. Like it got mm, really yeah. dark. It was horrible. And so now part of why I've chosen to be out with it, with my husband's full, you know, support is because I, well, one, I just thought if there is anyone else going through this, gosh, I want to, you know, provide some hope because not only did yeah. I survive this, but like even our marriage survived. And and that's cool that we got to experience both sides of the redemption. And I write about that in the book. But what I mainly want to focus on is like my redemption, my healing, regardless of whether or not my marriage would have worked out, which I, again, I'm so grateful for, but I really don't focus on that a ton in the book. What I really focus on is like, I chose to keep living my life and oh gosh, like I wasn't, you know, it's not like there weren't consequences. No one promised me a happy ending, but they promised me a life worth living and it, and it's true. And so I wanted to come out with that part of my story to help somebody else. And what has happened is from the moment that we were public about it, which was about a month before the book came out, we said, we wanted to give a heads up. This is something that's in the book and just kind of tackle that with the help of some guidance from my spiritual director who I met at my church, who's an older woman in her 60s. And it, she's just great. And I think always having some more seasoned, uh, has more life experience, that kind of person in your corner is, is huge. But what I found that I did not expect was for so many people to say me too. For yeah. so many people people I didn't ever expect, people you would never guess who were either currently walking through it or who had walked through it, um, who, some who it was very fresh for, some who, you know, again, they were past it. But the reason that's so important is, again, when I was going through it at the time, I felt so ashamed and I thought no one else was as quote unquote bad as me and would ever mess up like this. And now come to find out, like, we all have different infidelity or, or mistakes in general. Like, they're nuanced. 
they're motivated by different things. There's, it's a very complex thing. So I don't want to, I can't talk about my experience as if it translates to everyone. But what I will say is everyone's dealing with something. And if, if that's something that you're struggling with, if you only knew how many other people were struggling with it and even better had made it to the other side and have found healing and are on that journey, gosh, that is like, oxygen to your lungs, right? Like I think Mm -hmm. the first time I even came out with it, uh, to my husband, to my therapist, to my mentor, that alone made me feel so light and free. And there was like hope, but furthermore, when it became this thing where it was like, Oh, you're not alone. So this happened to them and them and them again, it didn't normalize it in the sense that suddenly it was okay. Not at all. But it was like, Oh, I'm not a bad person. I messed up this, this is bad. This sucks. But so many other people have gone through it too. It just, it reduces the shame. And so I think that's also why our stories are so important because when we tell our stories again, the right place, the right person, the right time, not everyone needs to tell their story in a book or publicly, Mm -hmm. even if it's just like you with one other person, it it's a gift to you and it's freeing to you, but I think it's it's even more a gift and freedom and permission and everything to someone else, probably more than you even know. So good. Um, I was, yes, when you were saying that, I was like, kept thinking like, it's such a shame reducer. Like shame says I am bad. Guilt says I did something bad and it doesn't take away the guilt of that. It doesn't make it okay. But it says, hey, I don't have to carry this in the same way. Yeah. So I, I love that. And I, Lindsay, what I was thinking when you first started talking is when we read about these things, when we see them in the news, I think there is this cultural compulsion to feel like we are deserving of all the details. We're deserving of the explicit, salacious, Mm. you know, all of that, like from celebrities to people we follow on the Internet. Like, of course you would give me that. And so I am grateful for the way that you have protected your story and honored and withheld in ways, but also been transparent with that and held those two things in tandem because you've told a story without telling all the explicit details. I appreciate that. And what I'll say is that was very intentional. When I first wrote the chapter where I talk about having an affair, I kind of just, per my editor's advice, I quote unquote made a mess on the page. Like that's what she told me to do. Just tell the truth and make a mess on the page. I'll help you clean it up. And thank God for editors and and people that help us when we are trying to use a hard part of our story, but do it well. Because what she did was we removed anything that just felt like unnecessary detail, any like, like, hate to break it to you, but if you pick up my book and you expect to get all these juicy details and like you're going to somehow piece together and do your little investigative research detective work to find out who this person was, you know, involved in my marriage. It's not going to happen. And that was yeah. very intentional. I, I'm i not telling this story for clickbait. I'm not telling this story because I'm proud that it happened. I'm only telling the story, one, because it's the truth. That's my job as a writer. And two, because I want to give purpose to the pain. I want to help somebody mm-hmm. else who's in it. And and the reality is at all times, I know there's a lot of people in it right now. And the thought of that breaks my heart. But if I can ease the burden, if I can offer some hope, if I can just say, hey, we're mm-hmm. years removed from this. And I, not only is my marriage restored, but like I am fully healed and I'm continuing that journey. And here's what that looks like. And here are practical steps. I mean, 
that's what I want to do. And that's what I tried to do in the book. So yeah, we, we tried to remove that like scandalous, clickbaity, gossipy, juicy detail <laughs> factor um, yeah. because it's not helpful. No. And I think too, like, I hope when people read that and, and I, you kind of touched on this, Mackenzie, but I think you can sense that, that my motives are not to like provide more than is necessary to get the point across. Yeah, I think it's a it's a reminder to us all. I think as we live our lives uh, often in a public sphere and social media or with other people, like just kind of taking a break and giving it some space, checking in. What are my motives? What am I trying to get out of this before I just let it, you know? Yeah, I think that's a good reminder. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, I'd like, I don't know a ton about like your, like what shaped Amanda? Like, I'd love <laughs> to hear like a little bit more about growing up and sort of the things that really helped make you who you are today. Yeah. I love that you're asking this because to ask this question is to ask what's my story, right? And it's to know more about me. And true of what I said at the very beginning of our conversation, there isn't a single person we wouldn't love if we knew their story. If someone only finds out that I'm the girl who had an affair, they probably write a lot of stories in their mind about me. But to know me is to know, and what I'm about to say doesn't excuse, doesn't justify any of what I've already shared, but it helps make sense of it. I think it gives you the oh, moment of that's maybe why she went down the path she did and has had to do a lot of work. And that is that my childhood was messy. I stopped being a kid around seven when I called the cops. My dad was arrested. My stepmom was taken to the ambulance. And uh, my baby half-sister and I were talking to a social worker about what we had just witnessed. Well, my baby sister couldn't talk. She was one. I had hid her in a closet and called the police. There was a really uh, horrific domestic dispute. And um, yeah, that was a catastrophe in my life. That's the best, shortest, most concise way to put it. And it shaped who I am. Like, I don't wear that like a badge of honor. It's more of just like to know me is to know that about me. And that catastrophe became the catalyst for my calling and so many of the things I feel called to do as a foster parent, as someone who works really hard to empower the vulnerable and fight for redemption. It started as a kid. And uh, yeah, I often wonder, I don't know how much you talk about the Enneagram on site or on this podcast, but like I'm a fan of the Enneagram and I've often wondered, gosh, would I be an Enneagram 8, the challenger who fears being controlled if my childhood hadn't felt so out of control, you know, like these are things I wrestle with in therapy to this day. But yeah, I I grew up in a small town in Indiana and I, um, both parents were married and divorced multiple times. And so my life was just, again, it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all hard. Nothing is black and white, but it was very chaotic. Um, and I feel like I've spent I spent a lot of my 20s, I'm, I'm just now 30. I'll give away my age, I don't care. I spent, I feel like a lot of my th- 20s making mistakes, trying to change, but it was so focused on behavior modification that it wasn't until the latter 20s and, and up till even current day that I've really done the work so that I'm not behavior modifying, rather what's coming out of me is a result, an organic result of the work that I've put in, uh, of the surrender even in many ways. 
So I don't know if that was more than what you bargained for no, when you asked that question. <laughs> so much. Um, you know, it seven is like so little. That is a very grown up thing to have to do at that age. And I would say that there are probably a lot of seven year olds that would be hiding under the bed and would be not able to make that phone call. And so I might argue that you, you were an eight back then, (laughs) You, (laughs) but who knows? You just answered the exact way that one of my therapists and an Enneagram expert that I spoke with, they, they both said that same thing. And I never thought about it like that. Like they were like, no, at seven, you could have just hid in the closet with your sister. And I was like, oh yeah. Yeah, maybe that is true. So maybe I was always an eight. <laughs> yeah, there's there are a lot of there are probably nine different options of things you could have done based on the enneagram. <laughs> but I loved what you said because you, as somebody that studied it pretty deeply, a lot of the actual really powerful work about the enneagram is learning sort of what your natural responses are, and then like having the space between sort of a catalytic event and. Uh, when you react to be able to like make a choice of like, is this how I want to show up or do I have other options? And I think that that, that deepened work of the Enneagram is the richest part of it. So if you've just heard us talk about it and just learned your number and think that, oh, now I have words for the box that I live in. There's so Mm -hmm. much more out there for you and um, keep digging and, and finding out more. Yes. That's a good word. Yeah, because yeah. the Enneagram, it's like, it's been such a great tool for self-awareness. It's it's helped bring so much healing and ease to a lot of my relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's been so helpful. And, and I love that, you know, you name, it's an ongoing journey. All of our healing and our self-awareness and all of this in a, and I don't say that in a, like an overwhelming way, but in a really positive, like, hopefully it brings some energy when I say this, like for, for me, it does, it gets me excited. Like it never ends. Yeah. Mm. That for me actually feels really like exciting and hopeful. Yeah. Yeah, totally. When did that journey like of the self-discovery piece of it start for you? Like obviously this very catalytic, traumatic event at seven, but at seven probably didn't know that or wasn't, therapy probably wasn't available, you know? So how did, what was the catalyst for you beginning your own personal work? Yeah. Well, I will say my mom did put me in therapy. I think I was like 11 or 12, but it was a horrible experience. It was like a very kumbaya, close your eyes. And I was like, mom, I never want to go back. That was so weird. So she didn't make me, mm. which is which is very kind. And I'm glad because that probably would have ruined therapy forever for me. Yeah. Um, I went on to have really positive experiences. And that was, I went to Bethel University. It's a college in Indiana near Notre Dame. I think it was three free therapy or counseling sessions as a student. Mm. It was something they offered. And I, I remember going, and I don't remember why I chose to go, but I wanted to go. And it's where yeah. I actually started to unpack this huge amount of anger that I was holding mm. that was impacting my life. And I think that's where a lot of the self-awareness and digging beneath the surface to to know myself and to know what was going on and to start uh, really pursuing healing. I think that's where it began for me was in college, but i still went on to make mistakes, right? Like it, it didn't, uh, it didn't like solve all the problems. It wasn't like, you know, this counselor was like a magic genie and that was it. It helped me unpack a lot of stuff with my dad, which was really, really helpful. 
It did not necessarily get to the root of, oh, now because of this deficit in your relationship with your father, you're addicted to affirmation from men, which then was going to cause, you know, a lot of turmoil in my newlywed life at 23 years old. So yeah, that was the start. And then it continued and it continues today, thankfully. I think even you're saying like the, with the Enneagram, like the work is just starting. I think that that a lot about all of our emotional health journeys, we talk a lot about that at Onsite of like, you start a journey, you've not, you're not going to reach a finish line. Um, And so I love thinking of that. You said that you started to unpack a lot of anger. And I'm just curious, I think a lot of times, especially women in our culture, don't either recognize their anger or their anger is like really dismissed or they're not supposed to do that. And so maybe you were, I wonder like, did you know you were carrying a lot of anger? Was it showing up in other ways? What did that kind of look like for you to come to terms and say like, oh, this is this is anger? Yeah, even if I had wanted to deny it, I couldn't. I had um, I had a temper and it, it would even yeah. come out publicly. Like I couldn't mm-hmm. maintain composure. I was a hothead. Yeah. In many ways, I was replicating a lot of behaviors that I witnessed from both of my yeah. parents. And so I, I would even go as far as to saying at times I could be violent, which is so bizarre. And people who know me are like, you violent? Like what? You're kind of <laughs> like people even will have joked like you're a shrimp. Like there's you're not, you know, you couldn't hurt anyone. And it's like, no, but I I didn't have a place to channel the anger. And I didn't know that yeah. anger was OK, but it just needed to be expressed in a healthy way and in a safe way. And um, now I'm equipped with those tools. So it's not like I don't ever experience anger anymore. Anger is still a very primary emotion for me. I think, especially with injustice in the world, like, yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I've, I, I don't really get sad. It takes a lot for me to feel sad. It's that's that's a whole other conversation that my therapist, if she listens <laughs> to this, will laugh when she hears it. But anger, on the other hand, it's like an easily accessible emotion for you. Very, very easy. And and I want to speak to one thing you just brought up, which is as a woman. I found a lot of shame in that because I was, I think that that wasn't portrayed. Like even when you're in high school and you see videos on domestic violence, it's always like the man uh, exhibiting the behavior on the woman or like, it's very much like, like anger is like a man's thing. And I'm just like, well, I'm not a man and I, I'm angry. I want to punch something too. Like, what does that say about me? And I think too, society and culture is less tolerant of women who express their anger. And then it's a whole other conversation if I were to be a woman of color, right? Then it's like a whole other thing. But um, so there was a lot of shame. And now I'm like, there's no shame. And I don't, again, I don't own it like a badge of honor of like, oh, I'm angry. It's more of, I know that anger is is a perfectly acceptable emotion and feeling. And I want my kids to all know that it is okay when they feel angry. Like we don't need to like rush our friends or our kids or our spouse through their anger. We just have to help equip people to channel it appropriately. So yeah, I I mean, it's, it's really neat when something that you've walked through with your therapist or like for me, and then, you know, a week later, I'm kind of like teaching that to my child. I'm like, okay, God, this is funny, right? Like, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it happens all the time. (laughs) One of the most revolutionary things for me, because anger is not something I feel like super connected with. I'm an Enneagram 7, so I really love joy. Um, I'm not really comfortable with a lot of other emotions. And so I was kind of in a conversation with my therapist about like emotions in general, and I was labeling them like good and bad. And she was like, Mm. emotions aren't good or bad. They just are. Um, And something we talk about at Onsite is – that every emotion has a gift and a dark side or a shadow side. Like the gift of anger is that it awakens you to injustice. And I would assume mm. that you are very familiar with that and lean into 
the gifts of that anger. And then there is a shadow side to anger, right? And so, I don't know. I just think it's a really interesting conversation as we think about, like, how do I get more comfortable with all of these and not label them in a specific way and get comfortable in exhibiting them to the world and living in that authenticity rather than saying, okay, I'm only going to live in joy. I'm only going to live in sadness or I'm only going to live in fear, anxiety or whatever. Totally. So, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of that uh, and caring for ourselves, soul care, will you just define what that is? I'm really curious. And before we let you off uh, this interview, I need to know, like, what is what is that definition and what's the difference between soul care and self-care? Yeah, I love that you asked this. Soul care is doing the unseen deep inner work. It's mm. anything to care for your inner world. No one's going to see it, right? For, so a great example is if you're experiencing jealousy in a friendship, no one may see that, know that. They might feel it, but that's a whole other thing. But soul care is doing your work to to navigate that, to heal from that, to choose, uh, yeah, to, to look inward, yeah. to dig deep, to get beneath the surface, to find out what's motivating or driving this thing, this behavior or this feeling, this conflict, whatever it is. So I, I always describe it as caring for the unseen parts of your inner world. And um, mm. everyone benefits from it, not just you. I know as I do my work and as I care for my soul, it benefits the world, right? It benefits my husband. It benefits my kids. It benefits the person at the grocery store who's ringing me up at the at the checkout. It benefits everyone when we care for our soul. And I would argue that nothing matters more than the condition of your soul. Mm. Nothing. Like, Again, it's another theory, so I'm open to people uh, debating me on this. But for me and and even people that I've spent time with who aren't anything like me, we've come to realize like in our discussions about this that, oh, you're right. Like nothing matters more than the condition of my soul. Like it doesn't, at the end of the day, there there are so many things that we prioritize above caring for ourself and doing that inner work. And um, I think it's the most consequential when we don't above all mm. else. And the difference with self-care, I have nothing against self-care. I love self-care. I just got a massage right before this. I told you guys that. <laughs> That's self-care. It's doing things that feel good and are good for me. But it, I, I would just argue that soul care is, it can't be done alone in an isolation. It also it requires that looking inward. So it's not on the surface. You know, it's so much more than just taking a bubble bath or getting a massage. And the reason I say it can't be done alone is I think you can only take soul care so far on your own. Like taking the Enneagram test and reading a book about the Enneagram and that self-awareness, that is definitely an element to caring for your soul. I believe that. But what I would say is that that can only take you so far. True soul care requires someone holding a mirror for you. Mm-hmm. and helping you see things that maybe are in your blind spot. So a lot of times that mirror holder is a person in your faith context. It could be a pastor. It could be a, a therapist, someone at onsite, right? Someone who especially is trained in it is really helpful. Yeah. But I, I even wrote about in my book, like we're all mirror holders for each other if we choose to be. I think we just sometimes don't realize it. And so in in that part of the book specifically, I write a lot about what is a mirror holder? What, you know, what in the world is, am I talking about here? But that's, that's the big difference with self-care and soul care. 
I love when you're talking about soul care that you kind of went right into the benefits because as you mm. started to talk about it and how it was like this unearthing what's underneath the surface <laughs> and stuff, I was like, that just sounds hard and messy. And so mm. it was it was like just the right timing for you to just say, why <laughs> why is it important and why do we need to do it? And that even though it is hard and messy, that it's like worth the digging. So yeah. I love that. Yeah. So good. A lot of times when we're wrapping up, we'll ask people just what is like one practice that you're doing right now that's keeping you centered? Mm. Do you have one? Yes. I would say right now, I have multiple things that I'm doing to care for myself, to care for my soul, obviously at all times. That's something really important to me. And I have like a, actually have it printed, a replenishment cycle. So things that I engage in daily, weekly, monthly, and annually that replenish me and that are really important for my well-being. But when you asked that question, the first thing that popped into my mind was presently playing with my son. Mm. Right now, something that's really centering for me is, and when I say presently playing with my son, I mean like not multitasking, giving my undivided attention, losing track of time, just playing with him. He is one and a half, which is such a fun age. It's just yeah. been a really centering practice to, yeah, to to be really present and play with him. I think it's kind of healing something within my inner child too. Like mm, yeah. it's seeing the world, like getting on the floor with him and like really being at eye level with him. It's been really grounding. It helps me when I feel like if there's drama going on in my life or if there's hard things, um, it's just been a really great practice to be like, this brings joy. It matters. It's meaningful and it's beautiful. And, and sometimes we just need that thing, whatever that thing is for me, it's what I just named to bring us back to that place. And yeah, it's even helped me with what I mentioned earlier, the whole responsiveness versus reactivity, I found myself recently going through something and after the fact, I was really pleased with myself because I responded instead of reacting. And part of in doing that was I took the time and space to just like go be with my son, which um, actually kind of had to happen because I was alone with him. So I didn't really have a choice, but it was such a gift because it allowed me the space. We talked about space earlier too. I'm seeing some like recurring themes here. It allowed me the space to then be with him and then go back to what I was dealing with that was hard and messy and show up a little differently in a, in a more grounded state. And so, yeah, I I don't know what the tether is for the listener, right? Anyone listening right now, you probably have your own differing things that, that are coming up for you, but it's just like, yeah, it's a good tether for me. I love that. Thank you so much, Amanda. This has been such a fun conversation and I am just so grateful for you and I'm grateful for the ways that you're showing up in the world and uh, going first in a lot of areas. So thanks for for going first in a lot of this. And I hope that everyone goes out and gets your book, (laughs) Uh, Soul Care to Save Your Life. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks so much. So fun. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.